team, led by Professor Sue Yendel at the University of Sheffield, is exploring how care arrangements currently in crisis in parts of the UK can be made sustainable and deliver wellbeing outcomes. We aim to support policy and practice actors and scholars to conceptualise sustainability in care as an issue of rights, values, ethics and justice, as well as of resource distribution. Our Care Matters series includes publications, podcasts and blogs from our team and others working towards sustainable care. Hello and welcome to this episode of Care Matters. I'm Dan Williamson and I am the Sustainable Care Programme Administrator and producer of this podcast series. In this episode, we're going to learn about social prescribing and I'm delighted to be joined today by Tim Anvilogoff. Tim is Head of Community Resilience for the two Hertfordshire Clinical Commissioning Groups and NHS England's Social Prescribing Regional Facilitator for the East of England. Tim is also a member of the Sustainable Care Programme's Advisory Board. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks very much. Tim, can you kick us off by explaining what social prescribing is and how does it work? Well, it's a, uh, it's a really simple concept, actually, and, and lots of it has been going on for years before anyone thought of calling it social prescribing. It's basically the idea that uh, when you go and see your GP because you're lonely or don't know where else to go, that they have someone to send you to talk to who has got time to explore what is the problem and then find out some solutions for you, working with you. And it's usually groups in the community, very often voluntary sector groups, charities, that services that you never knew existed or places that you could get involved in activities that you didn't know existed. And the idea is that instead of you ending up getting an antidepressant because your life goes on being difficult, you get helped into those kind of ordinary uh, activities and therefore you don't rely on the NHS as much and you have a, have a better time. So why is social prescribing so important? Well, it's, um, it's partly important because so much has changed in the last 30 odd years. I think a lot of the support that used to be available through um, traditional old-fashioned pre-eligibility social work isn't available in the same way. But there's been obviously 10 years of austerity and lots of pressures on lots of services and people find it harder to get information and support than perhaps they used to. And because there's the same issue with, with all of the NHS, obviously people turn up at A&E because the lights are on, they know that it's always open. And other people go and see their GP because they don't know where else to turn. So it's become much more common over the last 10 years. And when we got together the National Social Prescribing Network back in 2016, we found that actually it had been invented in lots of different places in slightly different ways all over the country as a way of trying to fill some of those gaps. And it was then that uh, colleagues, particularly Dr. Marie Polly from the University of Westminster, put together a report of the conference that we held, which said these are the basic things that we think make up good quality social prescribing. And actually, amazingly, uh, three years later in the NHS plan, there was funding for 1,500 new link workers who are now in post across England. So uh, it's an idea whose time has come and is really being rolled out. 
So Tim, why are you so personally committed to social prescribing? I've worked in the voluntary sector for about 30 years or with the voluntary sector in and out of it and in other jobs too, but always very interested in the way the voluntary sector can help people. I often talk about a woman that I met when I was a carer's worker in Kent back in about 1989. And she, I think this was fairly typical then, and I like to think things have changed, but a lot of this story would still happen now. But basically, I was trying to attract the attention of carers, helping them identify themselves so they could get support. And I finally managed uh, to get her to, to join a group we helped her sort out her benefits, various things. And, and of course, the irony in all this is she'd been seeing her GP regularly for about seven years because she was looking after her husband with um, COPD who was getting iller and iller. But back then, and this hasn't changed everywhere, but back then it was assumed that she would just get on with it. There wasn't much in the way of home care services. Uh, the only break that was possible those, in those days tended to be residential care. The GP did visit, because that was something that happened a lot more then. Uh, GPs visited their own patients out of hours. But no one had ever said to her, there were actually benefits you can claim, the support you could get from social care. There's a voluntary sector that could help you. And the reason it really struck home was the, um, I managed to get her backdated, which you can't do now, uh, what, what is now carer's allowance, but was then invalid care allowance. And the cheque arrived the day they buried her husband. And that, it just seems to symbolise for me what I've heard so many times over the years. I wish I'd known what you're telling me now five years ago. And there's nothing more depressing than hearing that. And of course, BT thought that her GP knew everything. And therefore, if he didn't say, why don't you do X, Y and Z, she wasn't going to do it. Uh, and it wasn't until I... I met her and was able to, to plug her into a few things, much too late really, that she got the support that she needed. And, and I think that's what the whole link worker role is about. They don't do all the work themselves. A lot of it is about saying, well, there's an Age UK, there's a carers organisation, there's uh, benefits advice from the CAB. But also some of it is about, well, if you are lonely, there are, you know, there are groups we can plug you into. I'll come with you the first time if you're a bit nervous, which is understandable if you haven't been a I mean, look where we are now. People haven't been out of the house for 18 months. You know, they may need someone to go out with them for a walk to make them feel it's okay. These are all social interactions, but they have huge impacts on your clinical outcomes, to use the NHS language. So that means it stops you getting depressed and needing pills. Thank you very much for sharing that story, Tim, and also for painting the picture of how social prescribing works. I'd like to ask you now about the new Public Health England publication, Caring as a Social Determinant of Health. Now, unpaid carers support people who need help to manage their everyday activities, usually because of illness, disability or advanced age. We have known for years, because of past research, that the contribution of unpaid carers can have negative effects on their health. So why is this new publication so important? It's important for a number of reasons. First, it might be worth just uh, saying a bit about what the social determinants of health mean. So people tend to think that the NHS is what makes you healthy, but actually it's not. Uh, it's probably responsible for about 10 to 20% tops of, of what makes you healthy. What makes you healthy, and we know this from Manchester, of course, because they've just seen that they've had 25% higher death rate from COVID and less deprived areas. 
So what's that about? It means your health is affected by your housing, whether you've got a job, whether you're caring, as, as we're coming on to, your poverty, etc. So that's what social determinants of health are about. And there is no way that the NHS can solve your social determinants of health. But what they can do in the NHS is make sure that you have people like link workers and other ways you can link into the types of support that you need. The reason this report's so important, because we have had, as you say, for years, lots of bits of data um, that show that caring can increase your risk of depression, you can put your back out, you can do all the obvious sorts of things. And, and clearly during lockdowns as well, your mental health can, can really suffer. So we've known that for some years, but as the NHS is changing, it's trying to move from just patching you up when you get ill to trying to prevent you getting ill in the first place. And we talk in terms of something called population health management. And the reason that I'm so excited about this report is that it's actually saying caring is one of those things like uh, social isolation, like poor housing, like poverty, that can make you ill if you don't get the right network of support to help you. And therefore, in terms of talking to NHS colleagues uh, regionally, locally, nationally, it's just really helpful to have that clear evidence. Uh, a lot of it comes from the GP survey anyway, that carers, their health is worse than the average member of the population, and sometimes for obvious reasons. And therefore, what are we going to do about that? Because we need to, if we want a healthy society, we have to help those people who are stressed out by caring, particularly the ones over 50 hours a week, where I believe the figure is that if you are caring 50 hours a week, that's 18 days of lost full health a year. Um, or that's one way of looking at it. But but so it's those sorts of issues. And clearly it's much easier when money's going to be so tight and all, all the rest of it, uh, if you've got that kind of evidence to support you. So that publication focused on work undertaken prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, there is also a series of reports in this Care Matters series on unpaid carers during the COVID-19 pandemic, focusing on unpaid carers' financial well-being, hunger and mental well-being, and loneliness and use of services. And they're available on our website. I'd like to ask you now, Tim, what is the role of a, a good local authority in implementing effective social prescribing? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think, that it, and we'll start with local authorities, but there are other key players in this as well, of course. But I mean, one of the things where I work in Hertfordshire is that the local authority was involved with the clinical commissioning group in setting up um, a social prescribing project in 2014, which was you know five years before the NHS plan told us we should have one. So clearly there were there were reasons for that. And there are a couple of things that particularly contributed to us setting that project up. One was that at that point I was seconded from the local authority to primary care and the CCG and we were very aware that there were people who fitted this category of not they're not quite being the right service for them. They were sort of going from pillar to post uh, and therefore it would be good to have a service that actually supported them. And the second thing was we, because I was now working in the NHS, there were GPs saying, well, we have these people who come to us and we can't help them because they're not ill. They have all sorts of problems, but we're too busy coping with ill people and we don't really know what they need and or anything, any, and we haven't got time to research it. So that's why we we felt that social prescribing was something we wanted to particularly get involved in and put some money into. And obviously in our situation in Hertfordshire, so where the top tier authority is Shire County, Hertfordshire, 
they have a, a responsibility around prevention and public health and a healthy voluntary sector, I guess. So there were a lot of things coming together there. But I think quite a few places in England, the first social prescribing is with these new link workers funded by NHS England who are coming into primary care. So what we really need to be happening across the piece, and it and it's happening quite well in Hertfordshire, is that partnership between the um, clinical commissioning groups who commission health services, but also the local authority who commission most of the voluntary sector, um, you know, people like Age UK, if they're getting substantial local government funding, it's usually going to be through through those local authorities. And among other things, we need them all to have a really clear vision about what it is they're trying to achieve. I think we've moved a long way in the last few years from a kind of, there's a, uh, if you like, a local authority granny and a health service granny and a district council granny and a voluntary sector granny. I think we've moved past that. And what we're saying is, and you know, during COVID lockdowns in particular, you know, it's about food and being able to get medicine, but also incredibly high levels of isolation for some people. You know, you need to look at people in the round. They're not the user of this service or that service. And again, this is what social prescribing is all about. It's basically a conversation which says, okay, I know your doctor thinks you need to lose weight or whatever, but what's your life about? You know, what do you want to do? What do you want to get out of life? And very often people haven't been asked that question before. They've been told you can have this or that or the other, or you don't fit or, you know, whatever. And that whole taking an hour and a half sometimes sitting in someone's home to go through and find out. And then you'll find that, yes, okay, I do want to lose some weight, but it's number nine on my list of priorities. My first is my dementing mother or whatever it is. And you can actually then respond to that. And for a lot of the people that we we work with, it's that sense that now we can make progress because you've actually told your full story, not just a bit of it, and uh, not just in a transaction with one bit of the system, but something that's trying to pull it all together in a way that makes sense to you. And I guess it's worth saying that probably, I mean, carers obviously form quite a large part of the client group of social prescribers if not directly, then as supporters of people who do. But the majority of them are older people. But there's a particular group, which I would say is is sort of middle-aged, out of work, long-term unemployed, perhaps obese, perhaps beginning to get diabetes, perhaps either low-level mental health problems or some kind of mental health problem, and just don't fit. They've got experience of, you know, no one of being able to help them, which they perceive as being let down and told we well, can fit in this box or that box. And why, you know, uh, the sort of people who, you know, we forget, I think, that the average reading age in England is something like nine or 10. And yet these people are regularly given huge forms to fill in and expected to turn up at places and, and people get angry because they don't turn up. But a lot of the time, you know, they're confused, upset. They don't know what's happening. If you can sit alongside that person and help them with those things, find out what really matters to them. You can actually also save the system a lot of money because the lonely person who might end up on antidepressants for years is now going fishing with a friend, you know? And uh, in our kind of quite clinical way of looking at the world and commissioning services, we can completely lose the fact that a lot of those very natural interactions with other human beings can be triggered by quite simple interventions sometimes. 
So you've mentioned a few times today uh, a link worker or the role of a link worker. Can you tell me how that role is structured and are they integrated with other primary care networks? Right. So, yeah, the, so the link worker, the social prescribing link worker, as described in the NHS plan, it's a very simple role, really. They take referrals from primary care, but from anywhere, uh, of people who need something other than what they're getting, basically. So I think generally there are some social prescribing services that particularly focus on mental health, etc. But certainly in Hertfordshire, we have no eligibility criteria. So basically the situation is, and the way we started it off was saying, okay, if you're a GP and you've got someone and you can sense there's something going on, but it's not medical and you don't know what it is and you haven't got time to find out in your 10 minutes, and especially if they keep coming to see you and you keep having this frustrating experience for both of you, then why not suggest they have a conversation with the link worker? Pre-COVID, our link workers, our community navigators always used to visit people in their own homes. And that's incredibly important because you see there are no photos of any family or you and or the damp coming in through the walls or, you know, all the other sorts of things that people won't tell you in a consulting room, but you will pick up on if you see them in their own homes. And then you basically do a very simple deal with the person. You say, okay, well, you seem to have three or four issues that you want some help with. Let's let's make a plan together. And in the horrible jargon, it's co-production. But um, in uh, I think in simple language, it's not taking over. It's saying, look, I'm here to help you. So what is it you want to do? And if the most important thing to you is going fishing, then let's work out how we can make that happen. Because you used to do it 20 years ago and you want to do it again, but you haven't been able to for all these reasons. Uh, we had a case with Bob the dog, the famous Bob the dog, where the, the big issue for the guy was that he, his housing association wouldn't let him have a dog. And uh, we managed to get him moved so that he could have a dog. And his GP said he, he went from kind of coming into the consultation head bowed to kind of walking in with his head up. And you see these things as a GP and you understand them and you value them. But you don't always know how to actually make them happen. So this is where, where the link worker comes in. And that's, I mean, that's most of the job, listening, coming up with that solution with the person, keeping them motivated. So sometimes they're going to say, oh, I don't want to go to the group this Thursday because it's raining or whatever. And you have to have a bit of a role sometimes of sort of um, reminding them that they have agreed that they really wanted to do this. And also, as I said, sometimes you need to take them the first time because they're, you know, they're so used to being rejected that the idea of going into a group full of people who might reject you is so terrifying that you need uh, need some help. And then use the relationship to build something which is uh, sustainable. So you don't, you're not going to stay working with that person for the rest of their lives. You're going to help them access these other groups in the community. And in fact, the evidence from uh, Ontario, the community health centres there, the research that, that they did is that where the person that uh, you socially prescribe to goes on to become a volunteer their health increases even more because now they've got a sense of purpose which is a huge amount of all this so yeah so that's the basic role what's changed of course during covid is that there was a, a period of time when you couldn't really go out and see people in their own homes but also there are lots of people who couldn't come out of their own homes that the gps were worried about either because they were on the clinically extremely vulnerable list or just because you thought, well, they're lonely and they're caring. And a lot of our GPs, well, all of our GPs uh, in West Hertfordshire have a carer's register. And so that was a list of people that, that the link workers could actually ring up and check they're okay. 
our local carers charities were doing that too and you know a range of people doing it and actually we had carer volunteers doing some of that as well so they were getting a boost for their social isolation their sense of purpose as well as helping other people so these are the sorts of, of things that link workers get involved in but going forwards i think we have a big issue because pre-covid it was all about referrals during COVID, a lot of it's been about outreach and doing things you wouldn't normally do as a link worker, like helping out with vaccinations and, and all sorts of stuff. So we're coming past out of the sort of blitz into something that follows the blitz. But it's not I don't think we ever want to go back to just taking referrals, because what we should start doing now, I think, is saying, well, look, we know there are 100 people on this uh, patient list who don't come and have their appointments for their diabetes and therefore they're going to have worse outcomes and the reason whatever the reason is it's not medicine they'll get the medicine if they come but they're not coming so how do we reach out to them and work out what, uh, with them what it is that stops them coming and having their medicine and getting their reviews and looking after themselves is it because they're working too hard is it because there's cultural reasons and all our treatment sessions are at times that are really inconvenient or they or did they just leave the last consultation not having a clue what the doctor was on about which is a surprisingly common phenomenon it could be a mixture of those things but again the role of the link worker can be to say well you know we're a bit worried about you because you're not you haven't been is there a reason why can we help you with that what can we do to make it easier for you to take part and we had a recent case and actually the the link worker has been involved with this person it's quite a particular character, but it seems that um, we've got a way into to having a conversation because it turns out his father died during COVID. And there may be, uh, through bereavement counselling, which is now being arranged, the beginning of the journey of trusting the link worker, moving on to the next stage. Well, you know, the doctor's a bit worried about your health. Is there, is there anything we can do to help you make use of the services that are there to help you? So I think we need to do more of that going forward. And I think... Obviously, if you're me and you're promoting social prescribing generally, you want to see each primary care network have three link workers, not just one. And that's starting to happen in some places now. And you mentioned the rest of the team. There are potentially health and wellbeing coaches in the team as well who can, once you are clear that you want to do certain things to improve your health, they can help you particularly with that area. But very often, I think people feel back in control of their lives once they have a sense of purpose once they're plugged into a few normal groups in the community with other people who are like them and don't feel they need a doctor or a nurse or a social worker. And it makes it much easier for, for them to then start on that journey to get healthier. So I think we should be doing a lot more of that going forwards. So if we are looking forwards, how, how do you see social prescribing developing like throughout the UK? So, um, I mean, I, I can talk most easily about England because the NHS plan specifically relates to England. We've got about 1,500 link workers we think in post now and that could triple within the next two or three years. There is funding to allow that expansion to keep going but the primary care networks can choose how they use that funding so they might spend it on clinical pharmacists or other people to help take pressure off their teams and obviously we're seeing a vast surge in demand on primary care at the moment, I think in Hertfordshire something like twenty five percent up on what it was pre COVID. So that creates its own set of pressures, and clearly each of those primary care networks will be thinking about the most effective 
way of dealing with those pressures. But that very often will be through the social prescribers because, you know, the people who don't really know where else to go, so they go to the GP, are the ones that we can, through social prescribing, help come up with other solutions. So I think I think it's an expanding area. I think the learning from places like Manchester and, you know, the fact that the black and minority ethnic communities have had so much worse of a time um, with the uh, virus than a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the mainstream population shows how much we need to reach out to those people who are facing all these different levels and types of disadvantage because that will improve their health. And, you know, some of the casework shows that there are people that GPs are trying to help, but until they have the social prescribing, they, they can't hear the GP because there's too much other noise in their lives. And so it's not always about not seeing your GP. Sometimes it's about seeing your GP once you're in a place where you can take their advice properly. And I think increasingly as this thing called the population health management agenda rolls out across these new integrated care systems, which is all part of the, the, the changes to the NHS happening for uh, next April, um, there will be this much greater focus on the need for a really healthy voluntary sector, which is where you know most of these people will be getting their support once the link workers plug them in. And a proper understanding of the difference that those informal services make to people, not just the, you know, the medicine and the bed in the hospital, but actually community groups, the sense that you can go out at night uh, safely, all these sorts of things which the NHS can't do anything about, but which massively affect your well-being. And I think, I mean, ultimately, one of our big concerns is obviously, you know, the financial impact of COVID is going to be so harsh i think that the fear of another set of you know another decade of austerity on top of what we've already had plus covid i think addressing you know keeping people out of hospital is going to get harder and harder if the social conditions are getting harder and harder and there's more and more um, restrictions on funding so it, it would be i think a bad economic decision to do that in terms of the health of the nation but you can also understand that that may be coming. Are there any other challenges facing rollouts of social prescribing? I think the main challenge is, is the health of the voluntary sector. And I think clearly, sometimes I talk about social prescribers as, as travel agents and the, the services in the community as the holidays. So obviously, there's been a surge in the number of travel agents, which is fab, uh, if you're planning a holiday. But then if all the holidays, the services in the community are up against it with waiting lists themselves or, you know, going out of business because of the not being able to fundraise during COVID and so on, then clearly we're going to have a problem. I mean, there is a benefit just from having that relationship with the link worker, but, you know, you do need those those solutions to be able to help people uh, to find. I, I think it's fair to say that we thought, if, if you'd asked me in May last year, I would have told you, by November on the data we had at the time, you know, half of the small voluntary organisations in Hertfordshire would have gone out of business. It wasn't that bad. I don't think we know how bad it, it will turn out to have been yet. But because there's been quite a lot of um, central government money coming down through local authorities and through some charitable givers as well, we've sort of muddled through. And I think we're now quite worried about uh, sort of April 22, when 
a lot of the short-term funding will have ended. I think the assumption of the Treasury is that COVID will be over. And whether it's over or not, in that sense, I think it will have cast such an incredibly long shadow that the social consequences of it will be seen for many years to come, not just people who've lost their you know, their jobs and been out of work for a couple of years or whatever, but the kids who missed out on some of their schooling, uh, you know, all of these issues uh, will impact. And certainly, I think adolescent mental health is one of those things that's been hit, and care of mental health because of, you know, reduction in services uh, to help you, the increase in um, time spent needing to be caring for people. All of this will have long-term consequences. So, we really need to be able to make sure that the voluntary sector is properly funded to be able to provide that human support to people because, for example, there are going to be people waiting longer for their operations on waiting lists. And if at least there's someone who'll ring you up every so often to check you're okay, perhaps if you're trying to not put on weight, take you for a walk so you don't put on weight before your operation so it's harder to recover. Those sorts of interventions aren't particularly expensive, but they do cost a bit. And we do need to have a plan. And um, I think that's an area where we all need to really be be working really hard to see see what we can do. Are there any challenges specific to carers regarding social prescribing? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, because obviously a lot of carers feel they can't leave the person they're caring for. And that makes it very difficult to go out and join groups and do the sort of activities that are often uh, encouraged through social prescribing. Having said that, um, COVID's changed a lot of things. So um, a lot of services are now available online in a way they weren't pre-COVID, and that's helpful to both disabled people and carers. And there's been some really imaginative stuff going on. I mean, um, some projects have been dropping art materials around at people's houses, and then they've joined in doing creative stuff online. And some carers have fed back that that's been, you know, one of the best things they've ever done in terms of uh, de-stressing and connecting with other people. All of which is great if you have access to the internet. And obviously there's been a lot of work done around the country in the last 18 months on digital inclusion because so many people either can't afford the kit, don't understand it, are frightened of the internet, think that all their money is going to be taken out of their bank accounts or whatever if they use it. So there's been a lot of work going on, including with carers, trying to make sure that they've got the kit and can use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are always going to be people in that group who can't. So that's a, that's a really important issue. As we start coming out of lockdown, obviously those sorts of issues uh, will diminish and it'll be easier to visit people and engage with them in that way. And I think we are moving towards a hybrid world where there's a mixture of, of online and physical uh, groups. And it'd be interesting to see how the voluntary sector adapts to make some of that available because... Uh, if you're one of those people with an immune condition um, or caring for someone with, with an immune condition, which means that even after two jabs, you're probably not that much safer, clearly you're going to want to still protect yourself and the person you care for. And that, that will mean it's as important as ever that we try and make sure those digital ways of, of being supported are available to you. So, and just lastly, a thought about exercise, because um, obviously as part of the population health management agenda for the for health service going forward, trying to prevent people getting ill going forwards. We know that something like 81% of carers feel they don't do as much exercise as they should. And obviously, if you can't leave the person, that's quite problematic. If you can do 
some of that exercise in front of your telly at home, as has happened a lot during COVID. Obviously, that's helpful. But social prescribing has also got a role, I think, to play with people who uh, need their confidence building to go back out again. So some of our volunteers in Hertfordshire are walking with, going out for walks with people. And obviously also, and this applies to carers and others, if you're on a waiting list for an operation, and those waiting lists are going to be longer, we obviously don't want you putting on lots of weight so that you're going to have uh, more problems having the operation and then recovering from it. And so those sorts of interventions, uh, whether they're physically taking you out or encouraging you to exercise at home in whatever way that, that happens, I think they're going to be a really important part of, of keeping the population healthy over the next few years. So just to uh, to wrap this up, Tim, you've given us some really great examples of social prescribing in action and, and some little successes as well. But is, is there an ideal model for implementing social prescribing? And can you share any success stories that other local authorities or clinical commissioning groups can learn from? I think the the link worker model is is a very sound model. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You can do it in various different ways, but the the idea is basically there's someone for you to talk to and find out what, what will work for you. I think what isn't in the NHS plan in the same way as the link worker model is the need for that, what's sometimes in the jargon called asset-based community development, but is about saying, well, it's great having a link worker. It's a bit like the travel agent's holiday sort of metaphor, but it's but it's something about you want to be developing new holidays all the time. You want to be helping, you know, if 10, uh, I mean, the number of times I've heard, oh, we've got, we've got 20 lonely people at our practice. Well, actually, if you get those 20 lonely people together, and all right, some of them may be the sort of people who are lonely for a very specific reason, which means when you try and get them with other people, that won't work. But, you know, there are ways probably that most of those people would be prepared to engage with each other if you make the right sort of sort of it. So some of this stuff's really quite simple and quite cheap, but it's the time to do it. And, and what's so key about social prescribing is time. So I think there's also something about protecting that time and valuing that time. I think if I've learned anything in the last 30 years, and some people question whether I have, but it, I would say that it's all of this stuff is about relationships and networks. It's not about structures. It's not about commissioning plans. If it's going to work in a place, it's going to work because the link worker talks to the local churches and mosques and, you know, the district council and the parish council and makes those networks. And then when Bob, who is, for whatever reason, not fitting into anything, doesn't, you know, uh, is lost, when he needs support, there's a way of plugging him into something that will start him on that journey. And it, it, you can't prescribe that, really. It's got to depend on what local networks are like. What And I think we as commissioners can help it, and we can also kind of knock it over if we're a bit clumsy and say, oh, fill in this form and everyone runs away. But it's really important that we get the right balance. But I do think if you really want social prescribing to have maximum impact. You've got to have access to those agencies who are recruiting volunteers. You've got to have the ability to influence commissioners to spend money on the things that social prescribers say are missing. And in our case, one of the first things we found was that hoarding is a much bigger issue than I think primary care realised. And that therefore, if you want help, you know, services that can help you clear the house and to deal with why are you hoarding and all those sort of things, can make you know really change people's lives 
but you need that system approach and you need it quite local. And that's one of the great positives of the primary care networks because they are populations of, you know, between 35 and 50,000. And that's small enough for one person, or hopefully not one person, but, you know, a link worker to start making contacts with all the relevant agencies, knowing the key people. And you can build those networks. And some of them already exist, of course, before the link worker came, but then they can tap straight into that and then build on that going forwards. And that's how you're going to then help the community to come up with some of its own solutions as well as helping them find them. I think sometimes they're 99% of the way there. They just needed a connection with the people with the money or the people with the time or whatever. So I think that's got to be the way forward. It's about really valuing the community's role, not dumping everything on the community because, you know, you need social work, you need medicine, you need funding. But there are a lot of things where, and we've seen it during COVID, you know, people have stepped up and started, you know, looking after their neighbours and the old people in the street and stuff. And I think we have to be careful that there aren't times where we've actually excluded that kind of normal human response from our formal structured responses to things. And we need to get that right balance between those mutual aid groups, which some of us we're very excited about. And then we thought, well, hang on, where's the, where's the safeguarding and, you know, all this and, and getting the right balance between those things. Tim, thank you so much for your time today and all that great information. I've learned a lot about social prescribing and its role in social care in the UK. I hope our audiences have too. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, so thank you very much. Thank you very much.